The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. But we're just going to use it as a springboard, but Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5 reads, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Let's pray again. Lord, we do thank you, God, that you uh, that you are God, Lord, and that uh, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, Lord. You people who were in darkness and enslaved to sin and yet have experienced the marvelous grace of your salvation. We pray that today, God, our hearts and our eyes and our minds and everything about us would be turned towards Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be magnified above all else. We ask, God, that you would bless, Lord, uh, the worship today, the preaching of your word today, the time that we spend together today. And we ask now, Lord, uh, that you would help me, Lord, to speak truthfully concerning your word. We pray that the things that are said are edifying and that they help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to follow up that one. You don't need to turn, but in Revelation 21.3, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. So as we've been doing the Sunday school, the uh, last few weeks that I've been doing it anyway, um, our working premise and what I've been trying um, to get across is that the Bible, the best way to understand the Bible is it's a single book by a single author with a single theme, right? And this is especially important when we read the Old Testament. So as we read the New Testament, obviously we're reading the Gospels and we can see the transition from the Gospels to Acts and then to the letters. But understand that the whole Bible is put together with a, you know, basically it's just a story, right? It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. It's a complex story. It's got a lot of aspects to it, a lot of themes, major themes, minor themes, this and that. But it is one story by one author. And in particular, as we read the Old Testament, it helps because if we, uh, if we start to look at it, not as just segmented, just this book's here for this reason, who knows why, but to uh, begin to understand even the order of the books are there because they're telling the story or helping us to understand the story. It helps us to understand and interpret the scriptures rightly. Um, the other thing I think is just, just beautiful. When, uh, you, when somebody opens up these patterns in Scripture, and you see it, um, it's just wonderful. And you really do think only God could do that, right? Like you, you, uh, you read and you see, and then uh, these, these things are connected, and you understand that they're connected over long periods of time. And even, even uh, the chronology will be such that something that happened at this period of time, God will put at this part in the Bible, uh, sequence, right? And he does it for a reason. And when we see those things, your heart just soars. You just go, only God could have done this. There's no way any man could have figured this out or anybody could have done it. Only God could do it. And then, of course, when you think all of life is that way, what, what the Bible is, is just God's, well, just God's, but in a sense, it's the God's eye view of reality, right? Everything's going on, stuff in China's going on, stuff in Palestine's going on, this and that, but, but the reality of the situation is, is how God understands what's going on in history. And he gives us that in his word, and we, and we begin to see that the, whole, that the whole of reality is about Jesus Christ, and of course Christ is here for his church, so we begin to see the whole of reality is about the expansion of the kingdom of God through his son Jesus Christ, through his church. And it makes sense of the world for us. So again, uh, Jesus is the theological center of the Bible, which just seems to be stating the obvious, but he is. It's his person, his work. He's the singular reality that unifies and explains everything uh, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in all of reality for that matter. 
And again, we only understand the Bible rightly as we understand it through the lens of Christ's uh, birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, right? So, uh, but there, uh, so Christ is a center, but I think probably would, uh, we could understand the major theme is the kingdom of God. So Christ is the center of everything, but the theme, the theme running throughout is the kingdom of God. So covenant, law, prophet, priest, king, Redemption, the cosmic war that's going on, faith, hope, love. Those are all kingdom themes, right? Revolving around the main theme of the kingdom of God, which is focused in the, centered in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's what I think is the best way to look at the Bible or to understand the Bible or to read the Bible. So in Genesis 1 through 3, we have an account of creation that actually presents the cosmos as one large temple. Uh, The Garden of Eden is really uh, the Holy of Holies, and we can see this played out throughout Scripture. I'll try to bring this out a little bit. Uh, And the uh, the image of God is made for the worship of God. So God has created this cosmic temple. He sets his image bearer in it in order uh, to worship him, to, to, uh, to be with God and enjoy him forever, right? So the whole, the whole of the, uh, so again, we'll explain this more, I think, but you have, um, you have uh, Eden, you have the garden, so Eden is the place of God where God is, right? Eden is like the Holy of Holies, and then you have everything outside of that is like the outer courts, and this, this is just the way the temples are, and this is the way the temple would be played out throughout Scripture. So the world is a temple, uh, but it's been defiled in, in the beginning, and the priests have been defiled. And the story of the Bible is the story of God um, reclaiming, recreating his space, right, for his temple, and reclaiming his people. In other words, he's cleansing, he's cleansing the temple, and he's cleansing his people so that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God with his people who were, again, in Revelation, we're told that God himself will now be there, right? So when we get to Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth are the fulfillment of the promise, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will dwell with them forever. The very presence of God, the beatific vision that we will see Jesus, right? Be with him is, is all part of this promise and it's all part of the reality of God having set up his temple. And what's a temple? It's where God meets with his people, and where that's going to be true, not in just one uh, specific locale, right, or geographic designation, but the whole new heavens and the uh, new earth, right? So at the one hand of the axis of glory are, are the heavens, uh, where God, in a sense, that's his upper room or palace, we could say it like that. And the other end is the earth, he calls it his footstool, right? The spot where the Lord placed the foundations and supports the entire cosmos, One writer says, in this depiction of reality, the primary axis is vertical. In other words, it goes up towards God, and it signifies the relation between heaven and earth, as well as the cosmic order and its relation to social order. So again, these things aren't just religious things, or they aren't just, you know, if you read commentary and something like that, they call them cultic. By cultic, they don't mean occult. They just mean they have to do with the formal worship of something, right? So it's, it's, not, it's not simply that, it's reality. This is what it's all about. And then again with, with the Bible, this is the way to understand the Bible. So the Bible has different themes, but one of them is the temple motif, we could say. It moves from the Garden of Eden to the Garden Sanctuary of the Tabernacle and Temple to the land of Canaan, which is another, uh, which is another land, promised land, land of Eden, right? And then eventually to the uh, Eden-like renewal of the heavens and the earth and the city of God at the end of the age. And the city of God at the end of the age is, um, the bride comes down, <laughs> uh, or the city comes down as a bride. So it is, it's a location and it's a people. It's, it's God's people. It's, the, cho- it's uh, the people of God with God, Somebody asked me the other day, well, all the cube stuff and stuff in Revelation, how that's going to fit in in the New Heavens and New Earth. Well, interestingly enough, it's, uh, if you read the erection of the uh, tabernacle, the Holy of Holies is laid out as a cube, just like the, new, uh, the city coming down. The city coming down is the Holy of Holies. It's where God dwells with his people forever and ever. And the Bible is the unfolding of all of the story. Right? So... 
the biblical sanctuaries then, right, they're in some way replicas of Eden, which was, as we read in Hebrews, uh, or the tabernacles, replica of heaven. Eden is also a replica of heaven. And so all these tabernacles have Eden-like pictures, or um, the way they're made and what's put in them is to remind us continually of the Garden of Eden. And, and, And the psalmist says, He built his sanctuary like the high heaven, like the earth, which he has founded forever. So again, the sanctuary of God is built like one. It's built like the heavens, which are also which is also a created realm that God set up where he is, um, reigning and ruling, right? So God exists from all eternity. He doesn't need space, but he creates the heavens and the earth. So the heaven is a creation of God, and that's going to extend out. And or it's going to, he's going to bring the two together, right? The heavens and the earth are going to be brought together. So Mary, just Klein, who did a lot of Old Testament um, scholarly work, he says Eden was the vertical cosmic axis of the kingdom, and he called it a metaphysical link extending the earth to heaven. So as we look at Eden again, we're seeing a picture of heaven, and then we're seeing a picture of how God is going to... Uh, work that out, being with his people. And again, then as we read through the Old Testament, and then even into the New, we see that this is what God's doing again. So he further points out that Eden as the temple garden is uh, the archetypical holy mountain of God. So again, where God dwells is in his holy mountain. Ezekiel tells us that the garden is actually a mountain, right? It's a mountain. So when you get the, the Psalms and you start reading about Zion, the mountain of God, it's important because it, it's God's mountain. That's where, that's where he dwells, right? So, uh, so again, this stuff provides a, a framework for all the sanctuaries. So just for example, and I'm going to just throw this stuff out real fast, but... Uh, commentators have noticed parallel words and phrases that Moses uses in describing the creation of the world in Genesis and uses the same phrases, right, and words in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, this is evident in the Hebrew, not so much in, when it, we translate it, but in the Hebrew, it's real clear, these things. So in Genesis uh, 1.31, and God saw all that he had made and found it good, and even though we translate it differently, the Hebrew is, is virtually the same in Exodus. And when Moses saw that they had performed all the task as the Lord commanded, so they had done. Then again, in the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their array and then the, of the tabernacle, thus was all completed, and the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Then again, Genesis, God finished the work which he had been doing. In Exodus, when Moses finished the work, then in Genesis, God blessed and in Exodus, again, Moses blessed. And in Genesis, again, and sanctified it. And then in Exodus, he sanctified it. And again, what's going on here in the picture he's painting is that the erection of the tabernacle is like a recreation of the world. We're supposed to be seeing that God is, again, making in this little spot something that existed from the beginning. So God, uh, you know creates the heavens and the earth. He has his, his temple spot, you know, where he walks with his people, where he walks with Adam and Eve, and they sin. So the whole world is thrown into darkness and disarray. And they're cast out of the temple. They're cast out of the presence of God, which means the whole temple. Everything, now, everything's unclean, right? Everything is unclean, and God casts them away from his presence, so when you think about election or think about what God's doing, think about it like this. The entirety of the earth is in darkness. The entirety of the earth is in unclean. There's nothing in it that's good. There's no one in it that's good. And what does God do? Well, he elects or chooses to set up his temple or his sanctuary. And he elects a person or people to be his priest in that. And so now what God's doing, again, now he's, he picks out his, his spot, which is Zion. He, well, he chose Abraham, and then from Abraham, he chooses the people of Israel, who now become those who are to uh, be the ones who are in his temple. And that's supposed to spread throughout all, uh, all of the earth. But the idea, and I know we think about of, of election, well, you know, he chose you, you know, he cho- chose me, chose us. 
uh, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and it's and you just you know you marvel at that. Uh, but the whole work of what God's doing is a choosing out of complete and utter darkness and evil. And yet he chooses, right? He chooses to set up his sanctuary, chooses to set up the place where he will dwell, and he takes the people out, and those people will, will be with him uh, forever. So there are more parallels. Uh, the seven days of creation, uh, Moses' construction of the tabernacle, and Solomon's construction of the temple. So there are seven God said, let there be sayings in Genesis chapter 1. There's more, there's more when God speaks, but there's seven uh, let there be, right? And there are seven Yahweh said to Moses sayings concerning the instruction of the tabernacle. So again, these, th- these things, when they're there, they're to, uh, the connections are real. So uh, let there be, let there be, let there be, and then Yahweh said, Yahweh said, Yahweh said. The tabernacle is a recreation, and it's a recreation of the place where God will dwell with his people. Uh, the tabernacle consecration lasted seven days, and the temple construction lasted seven years. Is that just a coincidence? I mean, you know, is seven a big number, especially from uh, in the beginning of Genesis? And then you find that things associated with the temple take place in these, in, in these uh, in increments of seven, right? Um, the temple dedication occurs on the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was a seven-day festival, and it fell on the seventh month of the year. Solomon's speech during the temple uh, dedication included seven petitions. Uh, rest occurs at the completion of each uh, a project associated with the temple. They do something, and then what do they do? They rest. Right? Um, Chronicles claims that the reason Solomon and not David was instructed to build the temple was because Solomon was a man of rest, right? And uh, so the idea here, again, of what's going on is God's painting this big picture for us. This is like big picture theology. What's God doing with everything? Well, here's what God's doing with everything. He's chosen to make a material world in order to reveal his glory in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and the way that that's going to happen is his son is going to come incarnate into this material world in order, in order to redeem his, these people who had rebelled against him but will now be brought into the very presence of God for all of eternity, right? To enjoy him forever and ever and ever. So... The temple, again, temple's construction is a microcosm of the world. What the temple is is how God's picture in the world. And one guy, uh, Gregory Bill, notes that the regions of creation described by Genesis are similar to those in the temple. The heaven represents the holy of holies, the earth, uh, the inner sanctuary, and the sea, the outer court. So the way God's made the whole world and the way he talks about it in Scripture is again pictured in, in, in the earthly temple, tabernacle, in the earthly sanctuary of Eden, which is a picture of the heavenly uh, uh, temple, which eventually those things will be brought together again in when Christ comes again. So uh, this guy goes on to note, he goes, there was a sanctuary and a holy place in Eden corresponding uh, to Israel's later temple. He said the garden, should, the garden should be viewed not as itself the source of water, so the water didn't come from the garden, but adjoining Eden, because Genesis says a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Therefore, Eden is the source of the waters. So Eden being the source of the waters, right? He's saying that's the residence of God. The garden adjoins the residence. That's going to be the Holy of Holies. That's where God meets with his people. And then everything outside of that is like the court of the Gentiles, or we would say the rest of the world, which is to be what? From, from Adam, you know, he was supposed to multiply. He was supposed to exercise dominion. And we're going to see that that's actually fulfilled in Christ and in his church. So we can read in Ezekiel. It says the waters would flow out from under the Holy of Holies. In, in, the, in, the, in the temple in the, in, the, in the end of the age, right? When God comes back. 
And Revelation speaks about the same thing. So here again, the idea of the waters of life, okay, coming out from God, and then, and then from there, bringing forth life as it spreads, right, to the place where he meets with his people, and then they spread, right, the glory of God uh, throughout. So again, Ezekiel and Revelation are developments of the first garden temple, and then Eden, the area where the source of water is lo- located, may be compared to the inner sanctuary of Israel's later temple and the adjoining garden to the holy place. So again, he's just painting a picture, and I know I'm reading a lot there, but the idea of all these things are actually picturing how God has created the world and actually what he's doing, doing with the world. So the sanctuary and the temples, when they build them, and we'll see that they were... Uh, they were full of Eden language. They were full of flowers and fruit and trees, all, all the carvings and stuff, and uh, the priestly garments. Also, even the, the high priest with the stones and stuff. And you read in Ezekiel uh, about uh, you know, the fall of Satan, and it talks about the different stones that are there in the garden. And again, God's picturing a temple here with, uh, with a high priest and with people who are, are to, uh, to be with him. So again, one writer, there were fragrant spices in the oil to perfume the sanctuary. Jewels and gold were used to decorate the sanctuary in the priestly garments. The temple was guarded by carved cherubim and its entrance, just as the garden was guarded after Adam's banishment. The priests served and guarded the sanctuary, and the people feasted there when they brought their tithes. These sanctuaries were symbolic of God's presence among his people and thus the restoration, albeit in, in the first tabernacle, the restoration of relationship with God, it was symbolic of that, although obviously it was to a limited degree because Christ hadn't come yet. So here's the other thing. Canaan is also represented, or, uh, it represents Eden, the land of Canaan, in which God's temple was built. Okay? And it was an extension in this sense, and it's sanctified by God's presence. So the physical characteristics of the land were similar to Eden. It would flow with streams and rivers and produce good food from trees that someone else had planted. Just like in the garden, God's the one who planted it. Now Adam was to cultivate and till in the garden. And when he plants the people, he plants the people in the land, the garden land, where he's going to dwell. Again, he's giving them something. They're not working for it. It's all an act of grace that God puts them in to the place where he will be and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. So the picture of the promised land as the new Eden was taken up uh, by the prophets, uh, where the deserts, deserts would become like the Garden of Eden. For Ezekiel, the vision is focused on the new temple within a new city, and God's presence is indicated by the name of the city. The name is the Lord is here. Here priests would minister, and people would come before the Lord for feasting, and although, this guy says, although this vision is of a city rather than of a garden, it nevertheless retains the physical characteristics associated with Eden, the flowing river, trees which continually bear ripe fruit, and the cherubim at the entrance. So as Israel is about to enter the promised land, they're delivered you know, from the bondage, from the darkness, from the land of darkness, and they're delivered, right? And they're about to enter the promised land. And Moses says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, again, not on the mountain of God. So God is, again, picturing what he's doing over, right? And he says, uh, you will plant them on your own mountain, the place of the Lord, which you made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So here, God's saying again, now, what's, when he, uh, the writer Hebrew says that Jesus has entered into the tent that wasn't made with hands, right, into the heavens, right, in the presence of God. But God also uses the same language when he says, I'm going to bring you into the land, into a place that my hands have made, right? Well, that, that's the physical land of Canaan, but he's, he's painting the same picture. What's going to happen is God is bringing us into the place not made with hands. And interestingly enough, most of the times in the Old Testament, the idea of being made with hands has to do with, does anybody know what it has to do with? Idols, Yeah. So it's not a place of idolatry anymore. It's not a place where the sanctuary is polluted. It's a place made without hands. In other words, without man's hands. But God's made it, and it's clean. And so that's what he's doing. So the whole uh, uh, you know, 
incident or whatever you want to call of Israel going into the land of Canaan is again a picture of what God is doing for for the whole of time. Okay. So, um, what does he say here? He says, Yahweh made the land of promise the same way that he made creation. It is his holy mountain, the sanctuary. He built it with his own hands, his own abode where he makes a home with his people. So which, what's being depicted, again, is a recaptured paradise recovered. So over and over again, every time we have tabernacle, every time we have... Um, temple, every time we have uh, Israel entering the land, it, it's, it's a picture of recreation. It's a picture of what God's doing. In fact, in, uh, in Jeremiah, and I think we've brought this up before, when God judges uh, the people and takes them out of the land, uh, he describes it as an act of uncreation, right? He, it's, it's, it, now the earth is without form and void, what he's not talking about in the beginning there, he's talking about when they're removed from the land. But again, from God looking at that's that's well, this is what it's all about. The temple, my place where I dwell with my people, that's what creation's all about. Now that they're being removed, it's just a replay of the temple having been polluted and now having to cast out the unclean thing, right? And the sanctuary has now been defiled. And so God pictures that language, that judgment language with, with the people of Israel. He pictures it exactly as if creation were being undone. So after an entire generation perishes in the wilderness, uh, the Pentateuch closes with a new generation east of Eden uh, poised to enter the land of promise. And in Deuteronomy, there's a stress on the importance of obeying the divine word and the importance of worshiping at the site where God will cause his name to dwell. And then moreover, the events of Sinai and even creation are rehearsed to remind the Israelites of their unique status. So with the last text of the Pentateuch, it has this dramatic picture of Israel, just like Adam and Eve, okay, east of Eden, but now they're on the verge of entering the land in order to consecrate it, right? Uh, in contrast, so Eden's getting ready to, uh, the children of Israel are getting ready to enter the promised land, but Moses has to ascend into a mountain and look at the land from a distance. And so we have this juxtaposition again of life and death. So remember Moses' sin, so he can't go into the promised land. And again, the picture there is the picture of the law. Uh, Moses represents the law if Moses could have gone into the promised land, what would have been being said is, you can get in the promised land by law. But Moses is kept out of the law. Now Moses actually did something. Moses actually sinned, and so he's kept out. But the, but the picture that's being presented is, can't get here by works of the law. Right? Can't get in by works of the law. So Moses is kept out. And Moses uh, will die uh, outside of the land of Canaan. Again, as a picture, Moses is in heaven with God. You know, We know that. But the picture that's being presented here is a picture of the heavenly courts, of the temple where God dwells with his people. And, oh, guess who can come in? Well, not those who try to come in by the law, or at least come in by their own law-keeping. They will be kept out. And, and, uh, and the ones who come in are the ones... Now, again, Moses had more faith than anyone else in Israel. We're not saying that but his life is a type of what's going on. So in this case, as they enter in with Joshua, they are a picture of what faith looks like being able to enter in, and Moses is a picture of the law actually being kept out. Right? So at the end uh, of Torah, you know, the books of the law, he goes, there's this, uh, one writer said, there's this remarkable clustering of themes that echo those at the beginning. So you have the power-laden words of the creator, presenting two alternatives, life and death. You have obedience and disobedience. Obedience means life with the presence of God in the temple. And disobedience means death in the absence of God and exclusion from the land, which is exclusion from the temple. Okay? So Adam was to guard the sanctuary, and we've talked about this before, those, the words of to keep and to guard, different translations of the English, but they're 
temple language. They're the language that the priests, the priests were to keep the sanctuary and they were to guard the sanctuary. Or Adam was to guard the sanctuary to keep it from getting polluted, right? And of course, the serpent's there and he doesn't guard it. He doesn't keep it. So again, everything, everything is unclean, right? So again, too, with the idea of, and God bless them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the surface. So this one writer says, if people were going to fill the earth, according to Genesis, we must conclude that they were not intended to stay in the garden. They were not to remain static. Yet moving out of the garden would appear a hardship since the land outside the garden was not hospitable, as hospitable as the inside of the garden. He makes the point, in other words, how could you distinguish that the garden was the better place? He says, perhaps then we should surmise that people were gradually supposed to extend the garden as they went about subduing and ruling. Extending the garden would extend the food supply as well as the sacred space, since that is what the garden represented. So I know we've talked about this, but this is part of the practical application of this. What God is doing is extending his sacred space, right? He's extending it from a localized, uh, a, a very, uh, a, a, you know, uh, just this one particular place, and that, that, is, that is the temple, and this is the Holy of Holies, and then look how he's spreading it out, right? Again, that's, that's intimate for us in the dominion command in Adam, but obviously Adam doesn't fulfill that. It's fulfilling Christ and then in his church, right? So this is what's going on today, but it's going on very differently than how Adam was to conquer or how Israel was to conquer the land. We're consecrating the space for God. We're extending the holy space for God. And how are we to do that? By the proclamation of the gospel. That as God's people go out, God's space, in a sense, is going out, right? So everywhere God's people are is everywhere where God is. He dwells with us in union with Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? And so what's going on now is the same thing, okay? But in a sense, different, because God's just simply painted the picture uh, for us so that we can see it better. But the holy space is now being extended. And I think sometimes if you think of it like this, it's just exciting to think about. What are you about as a human being? What are you about as a person? And of course, most people in this room would answer in some way, uh, you know, has to do with your relationship with God through Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, But you you are those who are called to extend God's holy space, right? To extend, as it were, the kingdom of God, uh, throughout this this land, okay, and as we extend it out, uh, God's in that sense God's rule and reign. Now God is ruler over everything, but His kingdom is being advanced by His people in the proclamation of the gospel and in the lives that they live, right? So 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 again, we gather here and we're blessed, and this becomes holy space because there are holy people here, right? There are those who God has now consecrated. Uh, you are no longer those who are in the outside in the, that have been cast out of the sanctuary that are in the unclean part, in part of the unclean part. That's not who you are, right? Who you are are the consecrated ones, right? The holy ones whom God has chosen to bring close to him. So everywhere God's people are is an extension of his holy space. It's in, and we extend the kingdom then as we proclaim, but also simply as we live and as we be, as we are uh, the people of God, uh, in, primarily in community, right? So, so to think about this, this is what God's doing in the world. Through you and through every other Christian, he's extending his temple, right? So, again, I, th- I think reading the Bible this way and understanding your life this way uh, 
God's made a garden sanctuary and He's going to dwell with His image bearers who are to extend this uh, throughout, you know, throughout, the, uh, throughout the earth. You know, debates on how that, you know, Daniel always kids whenever I say something like this. He goes, oh, he goes, uh, that sounds like uh, post-millennialism to me. And I go, I, I don't know, I don't think so. I don't know how that's going to work, right? I know God's going to, Jesus is going to come back and He's going to recreate everything. And the heavens and earth are going to be filled with his glory because they, the, heavens, the new heavens and the new earth will be, in fact, the temple of God. And more than just temple, it will be the holy of holies. It will be God with his people everywhere. But leading up to that time, his people are still here, and yet we are advancing, we are advancing the kingdom. Now again, whether that looks like as time goes on, most of the world gets evangelized and saved, or is that like little by little, and then God comes and affects a change, uh, a giant change? I don't know. But the encouraging thing is this, to think about your, wow, what a, I don't know, what's your life all about? I'm a consecrated one. Chose to expand the kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, to extend, to extend wherever I go, uh, to extend the holy space of God. Uh, you know, that's, that's who you are. Right? That's, that doesn't give us a big head. It should give us a big heart uh, towards God. So, Adam and Eve's banishment, when they were banished, it follows the same prescription that God will give to the Israelites when they were to cast someone out for being unclean. So, Genesis uh, at, at 3.8 is a temple cleansing. God's cleansing his temple. Uh, Jesus Temptation in the wilderness among the wild animals, as well as his healing, his miracles, his conquest of the demonic forces, are all part of what? Cleansing his temple. That's what he's doing. So sometimes the Bible can present this like conquest. You know, he's just conquering the land. But as he's conquering the land, that conquest is, is, is within the context of he's cleaning the temple. So whereas Adam falls in a, in a garden sanctuary, Jesus comes, and this is what it looks like now. It looks like wilderness inhabited by wild animals. But in a sense, if you picture it this way, he's reclaiming his space. So the way he's reclaiming his space is by doing what the first Adam didn't do, which is to guard and to keep. And in the way he's doing that is overthrowing, overthrowing all the darkness. And in effect, he's cleansing it. So that wherever he goes, whatever he does, he's cleansing it, right? And again, Jesus' miracles of healing and when he cast out the demons, those things certainly prove that he's God. But that's not the point of those things. The point of those things is an overthrowing of the old and a bringing in of the new, a bringing in of the kingdom of God. So wherever Jesus is, in fact, he said the kingdom of God is among you. And then as he, as he cast out demons, why? Well, because there are no demons in the kingdom of God. That's why. When he, heals, when he heals somebody who can't hear, it's because there's no deaf people in the kingdom of God. When he touches people who are leprous, it's because there's no one unclean in the kingdom of God. So he's painting this picture of consecration. He's, he's reconsecrating everything. He is now making everything holy, and in particular, he's making his people holy, right? So uh, the geographic, uh, 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 cosmic geograph- geography of Israel as Yahweh's inheritance, pictured holy ground, right? And then the territory of the nations, according to uh, Yahweh's decrees, belong to other gods. And this is an interesting thing too, this cosmic warfare. And uh, maybe we'll talk about that someday. But in the course of Old Testament history, Israel, again, became enslaved to the Egyptians and required supernatural deliverance from Egypt and from its gods. Okay, because they're given over to idols, right? They're given, if you're out of the temple of God, you're given over to idolatry. So to uh, inherit the promised land, now uh, occupied by nations who worship other gods, Israel has to reclaim it, right? And it has to be a, a holy war. And by that, I don't mean like what's going on in the Middle East. I mean a holy war where Jesus rules and reigns, right? But that is what's going on, uh, Again, your, your life, your consecrated life unto God is part of a holy cosmic war where God is overthrowing uh, the realm of darkness, overthrowing the rule of idols, 
and bringing back in the rule uh, of his son. So making the whole earth clean, a clean sanctuary. So Pentecost, that's God reclaiming the nations, right? And we talk about that with the language, the Tower of Babel is where they fall. The Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, God actually, uh, most of our translations, I think, so, he divides the nations according to the sons of Israel, but the older translations, right? So that's from the Masoretic text, but the older translations that we find in the Dead Sea Scroll and the Septuagint say they divide him according to the sons of God. And it was seen that in some sense, God gives the nations over to idols at, at the time of Babel. And so what he's doing now, again, is, is reclaiming these things. So at the Tower of Babel, they're, given, they're not going to worship God, so God gives them over, right? And so then what he does now is confuses their language. But at Pentecost, what's he doing? He's unconfusing the languages, right? Because why? Well, because now he's bringing all those who were cast out and given over to idols, right? Given, given over uh, to darkness. He's now bringing all of those in into his kingdom, right? And into, into his temple. So again, this is, this, this is a picture of the Great Commission, which is a picture of the Dominion Command. So remember Cain's reply uh, to God about his, you know, he's not his brother's keeper. And, and then uh, God says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And we might have talked about this in one thing, but this is just beautiful. What, what is God doing as he reclaims his temple, as he reclaims the space, and he's going to reclaim the whole heavens and the earth? Well, at the fall, the earth itself, now instead of being a land, now instead of being what brings up life, like in the garden, right? It just becomes the abode of the dead. It's, it's where the dead are. So the earth opens up its mouth and swallows. And the earth is where the dead are. And that's what the earth is now after the fall. It's not the place of life. It's the place, it's the place of death. Right? And then Jesus in the garden, no coincidence, Jesus in the garden, his, his sweat is coming out like great drops of blood and it's falling to the ground in a garden. Right? He's wearing a crown of thorns, which, what's the significance of thorns? You, have you ever thought why Jesus wore thorns? Where do we see thorns at the beginning? Part of what? The curse. Right? It's right at the beginning. It's not, now the ground's not going to yield. It's going to yield up thorns. And Jesus is wearing a crown of thorns. Why? He's bearing the curse. He's not, just bear, he's not just bearing the curse of our sins. He's bearing the entire curse. He's bearing the curse. Right, so now he's wearing a crown of thorns, symbolize he's bearing everything. He's in a garden, right? He's, he's, he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Okay, and where's he going to come out of in three days after, after he dies? Out of the earth. Out of the earth. So the earth was a place of life. At the curse becomes a place of death. It's, the earth is the abode of the dead. I mean, it swallows it. The earth is the abode of the dead until the consecrated one comes and consecrates everything. And now what, ha- what, now what does the earth do? Well, the Lord of life comes out of the earth, right? And, so, and, and, and what's going what's to happen at the end of the age? The trump's going to uh, sound, and, and what's going to happen? The dead in Christ are going to rise from where? From the ground, from the earth. That's, always, that's usually pictured as birth language, right? So here is a complete overthrow. The, what was once God's temple has now been given over to darkness and to death, but in the person of Jesus Christ, it's changed, right? And now the earth, which was just the realm of the dead and the abode of the dead now brings forth uh, in a sense, Jesus comes forth from the earth unto life. And at the very end of the age, before God, like, that's like the last thing the earth's going to do now before it's recreated, okay, is this. It's going to birth the sons of God. It's going to birth the children of God. So now the whole earth, again, is now being consecrated to God. 
So that which was once in darkness and death and decay and corruption is now going to be that which is, uh, you know, where's where life comes from. And again, in, 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 uh, in the New Testament and in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, of course, it's, it's going to be different than this because, you know, we see Jesus' body. He has a real body, but it's different than ours. But a real body is spiritual body, Paul tells us, but it's a real body. And he, he, says, he says to them things like this. He goes, uh, I won't partake of this until when? Until I, I eat it in you with you in the kingdom of God. So the temple, the new temple, the new heavens, the new earth will again be it will be better. It will be like Eden, but better. It will be where God's people are with God, enjoying God's promises and God's presence, but also enjoying everything that was made to be good from the very beginning will now no longer be tainted with anything. It will all, it will all bring forth life and all bring forth joy. Uh, again, uh, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy uh, of, of your master. C.S. Lewis used to say there, he, he used to go, he goes, I, I don't know how to convey this any more than like if you were to jump in the ocean, you've now entered into water, right? He goes, when God tells us that we are to enter into joy, we are to enter into the realm where joy is, is the sphere of influence. It is what everything is all about. To think about to go from this place uh, with all its trials and troubles and tribulations and to be enter into a place where if you were to go, what's the air that you breathe? Oh, it's joy. You know, what, 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 you know, what, what, what is it here? And, and you would go, well, everything here is joy. You know, because it's the place where God is. And it's the place where his people are. And to think about our life. Okay, what's going on with your life right now? Could be all kinds of stuff, Right? But here's what your life's all about if you're in Christ, is, is to be with God. And to be with God, not just like in some like, oh, kind of like hard religious way or something, you know, whatever you might think of. But the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sent his son Jesus Christ, is good, right? And to think about to be in the place where he expresses his goodness, his kindness, or any attribute of God that you want to think, to the maximal degree that it can be expressed to a created being, that is the temple of God. And that's what he's called you for. That is what your life is all about in Jesus Christ. You know, that God has called you uh, to, share, to share in that. So, um, Christ, by his spirit, right, he's continuing uh, to cleanse his temple, right, both individually and corporately. What's, what's God doing in you? You're consecrated once, so he's continually consecrating you. Uh, your, your, your individual cleansing, in a sense, right, will reach its, uh, in the, corporately, that will all reach its apex when Christ comes, right? And again, this means, among other things, that you're instruments of his grace, uh, to everyone that you come in contact with. And, and, and Peter will say this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as what? As a spiritual house, as a temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God's temple, again, has idea of locality, but most of the time it, that what's being presented is an idea of, of personal relationship. So God's house is God's household. It's not, it's not a building. I mean, it's a locale because we are embodied, right? Uh, so we o- occupy space. But what's being communicated in the idea of God's temple is you now become God's household, you become the members of this house. And uh, again, new creation being the temple of the house of the Lord, it's all members of God's household. Right? My father's house are many rooms. And one writer says, drawing as it does from temple imagery, 
you know, it says, don't make my father's house a house of trade. It says it has to do with being in the presence of God, being with him. The term father's house in the scripture does not usually mean a physical building, but usually means the group of people who make up a household. So here, here again is what God's doing. So the tabernacle, the temple, the promised land, these are all types of the heavenly reality that well, one day would be made manifest on earth. In Christ, like the last Adam, or not like Christ as the last Adam, as the true king priest who perfectly obeyed God and expanded the boundaries of the temple from himself to others, has chosen to expand it again into your hearts and through us into other people too. The new heavens and the new earth are described as temples, a temple because the temple, which equals God's presence, encompasses the whole earth because of the work of Christ. At the very end of time, the true temple will come down from heaven and fill the whole of creation. The whole creation will be renewed into an Eden-like paradise where God will walk freely among his people, wiping every tear from their eyes. Every relationship will be restored to perfect intimacy and harmony. The inhabitants of this city will be God's servants, and with its coming, the marriage feast is celebrated. This city is built of gold and precious stones, and its center is the river of the water of life, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, flanked by the tree of life, which always bears ripe fruit. The original pristine universe that God brought into existence served as a prototype and archetype that looked ahead to the future venues in which the Lord and the covenant community would enjoy fellowship forever. And so I'm going to say that's the goal or the telos of all creation. And so as we read our Bibles, read it in light of this, you know, God set up a temple in order to meet with his people. They, uh, they polluted the temple. And God is, is in the process of reestablishing uh, his temple and his people, which will be way, way, way better uh, than the first Eden ever was. And our relationship with God will be, is and will be way better because we are no longer united to the first Adam in his corruption and his pollution that separated him from the sanctuary. But we are united to the second Adam who is at the very presence right at the right hand of God, which means that's where we will be too. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, again, thank you for today, God. Pray, Lord, that with all this information that you would uh, use, Lord, at least some of it, uh, to edify your people, God. Uh, we pray for the rest of this day, and again, we, we, we give it up to you and ask, God, that you would be pleased to bless us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.